Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Look, Sherry, we have friends. Yeah. Isn't this exciting? No, it is very exciting. I like having company. Yeah. Not that you're not good company, but... It's just you and I get boring. You know, I feel like it gets boring for us. It's got to get boring for the listeners. So it's much better when we have people, and we don't just have a friend. We have a whole yeah. round table of friends. Five people joining us on the podcast today. Allie, Laura, Avia, Grace Ann, and Jessica. Welcome to all of you. Um, I know it's kind of weird to all talk over each other. So I'll just tell our listeners that you're all waving back at us right now on the Zoom screen. We're glad that you're here. We're going to bring their voices in very soon. I'm excited to say that all five of our guests today, this is their first time on the podcast, and they've got some really, you know, valuable uh, experience to share on our topic today of worthiness. But before we get to that, Let's do the listener question, Sherry. What do you say? Certainly. Okay, great. The listener question today, Echoes of Recovery is open to anyone who is the loved one of an alcoholic. Is there a lot of variety in the relationships to to alcoholism among the participants in Echoes? It's a good question. It is. We are open to anyone who is the loved one of an alcoholic, and we have definitely welcomed people in who are other than the spouse or partner of an alcoholic. Yep. But I think the, the, well, I know the truth is, and I think the reason for the truth is that we mostly have spouses and partners of alcoholics. And the reason is people listen to the podcast and they relate to our situation. Mm -hmm. And those are the people who join us. Right. So people who have like an adult child who's an alcoholic, This might not be the podcast for them, although we try to, you know, cover a variety of content. We try to be open-minded and discuss situations that would apply. But I think for the most part, it's, do do you think that's why we attract people who are partners and spouses more than anything else? Yeah, I think that, um, I think we attract more uh, partners, romantic relationships because of the podcast. Also, I think that as we've learned, there's just not a lot out there. And from the people that are in our Echoes Recovery Group, we've learned that maybe if they have attended Al-Anon or they're still at Al-Anon, but they use us also, that there's a lot more variety in Al-Anon because they can, they don't have the podcast that kind of drives that sort of relationship conversation. I think because there aren't a lot of options out there for romantic relationship recovery. And there are more with, you know, Al-Anon and, um, I had one at the tip of my tongue, uh, like the narcotics, oh. you know, and rehab centers will help families. There's also an adult children of alcoholics, an adult group. children of alcoholics group. So maybe it's because we're filling a, a missing piece too. That could be it for that romantic relationship recovery. Excellent point. We could use more husbands. Mm-hmm. We, we partners have, of all kinds. I would say, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but I would say that, it's still probably the dominant relationship setup, and by dominant, I just mean by statistically, by numbers, that the male is the drinker and the female is the spouse of the drinker. Um, but there are lots and lots of situations where the woman has the alcohol use disorder and the male partner is struggling to figure out what to do. And it's not, our uh, Echoes population is not statistically representative so we could use some more dudes yeah yeah me and the other dudes that are already in echoes yeah. could use some more dudes well i think women just feel more comfortable reaching out yeah. and finding resources and connections also i'm wondering if there isn't some sort of stigma behind that for some people that they're worried about reaching out if they're the male in the relationship yeah you know, when I was, when we published our book, I knew the statistic and I'm not, I don't remember exactly what it is now, but it's something like 90% of all books are purchased by females. Mm-hmm. Even books that men read are purchased by the females. And then here, because we're the gatherers. Yeah. Because you're the gatherers. Yeah. yeah. We gather the resources and information and 
and, and reach out for help because we are not afraid to share our feelings. Well, we're, yeah, partners of all kinds. We're sure glad that the five folks that are joining us today are not afraid. You know, you're probably sitting there looking at us while we answer this listener question thinking, you know, you know, Matt, there's another technology. There's a way to blend audio files. You could have just done this without us sitting here staring at you and wasting our time. Um, and you're right. And I even know how to do that. But uh, it's a little bit of a hassle. So instead, you guys got to watch us answer a listener question. Sorry about that. If any of our bring them on. Yeah, if any of our other listeners would like to uh, ask a question, remembering that we are not psychologists or therapists, we're just folks who've been through a lot of stuff. So if you want an answer from folks who've been through a lot of stuff, send an email to Matt at soberandunashamed.com and we will work it into the rotation and address it on one of these episodes, hopefully. So our topic for today is worthiness. Um, believe it or not, even with these five wonderful people, I'm going to start with you. I'm going to start with you, Sherry. Um, when we talk about worthiness, for a you know, we've talked many times on the podcast about how important self-esteem is to recovery. Whether you're the drinker or the loved one of the drinker, nothing moves you toward health like feeling good about yourself. Not arrogance, but self-esteem. Just I'm proud of who I am. I get out of the bed, out of bed in the morning with a purpose and I feel good about myself. That's what we're talking about when we talk about self-esteem. And so, and worthiness fits right in there, right? So when you're in a situation where you feel unworthy, that's real bad for you to use a really technical medical term. <laughs> that's not good. So the, the question I have for you before we bring our guests on, how did the gaslighting impact the, your feelings of worthiness when I would drink and I would tell you lies or I would deny the truth or I would call you names in the middle of the night or just tell you that the reality that you were witnessing wasn't really true. How did that impact your feelings about yourself, your own worthiness? Well, I think I've mentioned on the podcast before that a lot of the times I knew you were full of shit and I wasn't believing you. So there was, I mean, but it does wear on you and you do start to question and doubt. I think how it impacted me the most was that I felt so disrespected because you were trying to shift the blame onto me and you wouldn't open your eyes to some of it. I know I knew I had a temper. I knew there were a lot of times I could have walked away and not engaged, but my mouth just wouldn't let me. And I was angry and frustrated and furious that I would have to get all of it out. Um, so I, I perpetuated situations, um, you know, that I knew that I knew what I was responsible for the next morning. Um, I, I think that your gaslighting overall was very wearing and toxic, taxing on me in a way that made me realize how disrespectful you were to me how very little you thought of me. And it ended up making me feel like I was not very smart. I was not, you know, and you never said that. You never said, oh, well, you didn't, you know, finish your four-year degree. And you never said anything like that. But I think that the way you would argue back and gaslight just made me feel like my lack of my bachelor's degree, no matter what my life experience was, no matter what, you know, that I was in cooking school, all of that, it didn't matter. Um, cause I just felt like I wasn't as equal level with you. So just that disrespect, you know, it, it's interesting. I, I don't deny anything you said or that, that it had that impact on you. I never, I never set out to hurt you. I never set out to, uh, make you, you know, there, there's a lot of belief that the gaslighting is intentional manipulation. And for me, and I, I got to think for most alcoholics, it's not intentional manipulation. It's a defense mechanism. It's a, yeah, the things you're saying are probably true. So I got to fire back with something. Mm -hmm. Again, not excusing it. It's still just despicable and reprehensible. Um, I think one of the things you said at the very beginning is something that we're going to come back to uh, a few times on this podcast. You talked about how you knew, you know, kind of on a conscious level, what the truth was. But when you're being berated over and over and you're being convinced otherwise over and over, 
you know, there's part of you that can't, can't help but believe what you're hearing. And that's this battle that we talk about all the time between insecurities and, you know, what you're, what your confidence, what you're, what you're confident in on a conscious level. And so those insecurities start to really eat away on you, even when you know they're not true. Mm-hmm. I think that'll be a recurring theme. All right, let's bring our guests in. Laura, I have a question for you. I want to start with you. And I, I want to explain that all five of you th- um, that are here on this, this video call, on this podcast recording, are here because of something that you wrote in our Echoes of Recovery session a few weeks ago on the topic of worthiness. And so I don't wanna suggest that we just read our writing, but I do wanna suggest that the writing component is huge for all of us in Echoes. We, every other week have writing prompts and we suggest that people spend a half an hour, an hour, something like that writing to the prompt. And then we come on the calls and read to each other. And when we write, we just go deeper. We're more vulnerable. We're more honest than we are when we just talk about our stuff. And so that's the real value to the writing. And I want to quote something from Laura from one of your writings from a couple of weeks ago. You said, his lies have broken us, but they will not break me. I thought that was such a powerful line. And it goes right to the heart of what this whole worthiness thing is all about. So can you talk a little bit about what that means to you that his lies have broken us, but they will not break you? Yeah, I mean, I would say I have to be honest, um, the lies, the gaslighting, I would, you know, teeter over the 18 years of, you know, feeling disrespected, feeling unworthy at times, feeling crazy. And the truth is, until I found this group, uh, that is what really propelled me um, into really being able to 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 get my head around that line, because I it was always about me. It really was until I came here and I heard everyone's stories. And even though everyone's stories are different, we're all similar in that we're spouses of alcoholics. And. There were, there were threads of truth that I heard that I always hear every week on our calls that just really hit me and really started to, uh, in my mind, sort of solidify the feeling of this, this isn't me. This isn't me. And when I really thought about it and, and did a lot of self-reflection and introspection, the lies, the gaslighting, they broke us. And I, I, from coming to this group, I think I, I really propelled myself to say, I'm not going to allow the lies and the gaslighting to break me because it's not about, it's not about me. It's about him. Uh, the lies and the gaslighting are him. And, you know, honesty and trust are pretty much the, the, the core to a relationship and the foundation of a marriage. And so when you do that to someone, I, I had to, I'm separating now, you know, the disease from the person, right? And, and the disease from me, because it's, this isn't about me. This is about, well, it's about the disease and it's about him, but it did. It, it's broken our relationship, but I will not allow it to break me. It sounds like you really might relate to what, what I um, responded to when Sherry answered that first question about the fact that, you know, on a conscious level, who you are, you know, what you're confident about, but the thing that that gaslighting and the lies do is kind of break down the, you know, the belief in it. Um, and you need something. And in this case, you know, you found support to help, you know, nobody, nobody in echoes changed your mind. They just helped solidify what you already believed. Am I, am I hearing that right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that, again, over the 17, 18 years, um, the, the more and more lies, the more gaslighting. Yeah, you know, as Sherry said, too, you, you know, on some level, you know that it's not true, but you, it, there's always something in the back of your mind that's saying, is it true? You know, did I remember that right? Did he really say that? You know, it's just, you know, you you can't really explain it until you're in it. 
And, and that's exactly what happened here. The, you know, when I came here and hearing everyone, everyone seems to have this same, this common thread. And then it made me, again, it, it, it solidified it for me and my mind to say, you know, if it's happening, it, it's like, it's that connection with other people, right? Like, I feel more connected, I feel more supported in what I was feeling, because other people are feeling it too. And that was the, um, the really the, the turning point. And, and I mean, I, it happened pretty quickly for me, you know, um, really after the first group, it was sort of like an aha moment of just, you know, this weight had been lifted off my shoulders that I just felt I finally found something because I had been looking for a very long time. Well, we're certainly glad you found us. You talk about a common thread. Jessica, I want to go to you because you have what Sherry and I would consider to be a very typical story as it relates to how alcohol impacted you and impacted your marriage and impacted your family. So, you know, a lot of times when you talk or you read your writing, you remind me very much of us. You remind me very much of Sherry. And, and there was something that you read, which I was so impressed with your vulnerability to share this with us. And now you're going to share it with a lot more people. Um, I hope you're okay with that. Um, but you, you shared something that a therapist asked you, the therapist, therapist asked you, you don't have much self-confidence, do you? Can you kind of take us into that session? What did that feel like to have somebody say that to you? So when she said that to me, that just felt like a knife in my chest. Like it really hurt bad that I feel like my life is compartmentalized. My relationship with my alcoholic husband and then everything else. And I feel like my friends, my family, my children, God tells me otherwise. And it's taken me a while to come to that realization and to find that confidence maybe just because I feel like 15 years of living with an alcoholic husband takes a toll on you um but that hurt like a knife that that one compartment with my husband would come off as I have no self-confidence and all that I have been through with my husband to bring me to that place of feeling that way it just it hurt I think that is so common to have all the other things in your life saying one thing, but this one person, this one relationship is the one that's dragging you down. And sadly, I don't know if it's right or wrong, but the way, you know, the constructs of marriage and relationships in our society say that's the most important relationship. So it adds weight to the feedback that you're getting from the one negative person. That's such a, I mean, that's certainly what you were experiencing, Sherry. Yeah. Nobody, and I would, you've said this before, but I would tell you, awful things like, you know, nobody cares about your opinion and your experiences were that lots of people cared about your opinion. Yeah. Or like, I remember one time you said, you know, this is why you have no friends. And I thought, my gosh, I have so many more friends that I do things with and you just sit at home and you work and that's it. Like there is nothing, you know, I mean, you had soccer, but I thought, well, if I'm such a terrible person and I have no friends, you know, then why does anybody want to invite me to do things? So I felt so confident when you were not around, it was like you were an anchor and you just dragged me down and I would lose confidence. And I would, you know, that I think started to wear over time, like Jessica said. And, and then I'd be like, Oh my gosh, am I crazy? No, I'm not crazy. But then I'd be like, are you crazy? Cause you were the voice in my head. Yeah. Yeah. But that, and, and I would just, I kind of felt like I would fall apart when I would be around you because of all the emotions and all the anger and all the frustration and disappointment and sadness and grief that it made me so sort of unreliable in how I was going to react. Yeah. That it really did make me look like a lunatic. Yeah. And I, then that would make me feel bad. And then that would hit my self-confidence. Yeah. Well, understandably so. I said and did some really awful things and I'm supposed to be the one you most trust. Mm-hmm. It's really, it's really terrible. Avia, you, Sorry. please go ahead. I was just going to say, yes, like what you just said, you were supposed to be the person she most trusts. Like 
she's supposed to be the person I'm most vulnerable with, loves me the most, yet can just bring your self-confidence down so low. And it's just a confusing place to be. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you highlighted that because that's the one of the parts that I think is most confusing for the people on my side of the fence, the alcoholics. We say, hey, I got sober. You know, what more do you want from me? It should all be fixed now. And we, what we don't realize is it's not just that we were untrustworthy in some kind of meaningless work relationship, or it's not like your, you know, your cousin that you see six times a year or three times a year, you know, who cares about that? It's the person you're supposed to trust, mutually trust for protection. And that's the least trustworthy person in your life. That's, that's the part that we alcoholics don't understand is going to take some massive repair work to come back from. So I'm, I'm glad you highlighted that. Avia, I wanted to ask you, you have a, a really, we talked about kind of the societal impact because the marriage relationship is so high on the totem pole as far as what we value in our society. You talked in your writing from a couple of weeks ago about, well, I'll, I'll just say what you said. You said you, you talked about what was required by others of you to be worthy in their eyes and how it was kind of an active I don't know. I don't know if battle's the right word um, for you to dismiss what others require of you and just to focus on your own worthiness. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. um, When I was um, thinking about writing this, I I really struggled because um, I didn't really feel like I didn't feel like I was worthy, you know. But what I finally came to the conclusion was that. although I always felt worthy, I definitely felt like there were some requirements attached to that worthiness. And um, some of those came from, you know, my upbringing. Um, A lot of them came from the church that I was raised in. And then there's just a lot of very common societal, especially with women requirements um, that are attached to that. And um, the main, the main word that I use was making people happy. So which would be not making people uncomfortable, not making a fuss, following the rules, um, you know, being a good girl, um, never being too much, you know, just kind of those, I think, pretty typical societal expectations that were put on girls, especially in the last couple of generations. Yeah, absolutely. Conforming to what's expected of you. Um, Wow. That's really interesting. Um, Allie, you talked about the difference between tangibles and intangibles in your writing from a couple of weeks ago. You talked about things like career and accomplishments, but that those shouldn't be the goals. Those should be the outcomes of the intangibles. And when you think about worthiness and you think about those intangibles, you specifically try to model those for one person, those intangibles. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, I actually kind of took some notes this morning because I'm me. (laughs) (laughs) And we love you, so that's great. Tried to kind of organize my thoughts on that. Um, So kind of going from the intangible standpoint, um, character I think of as basically intangible qualities, um, things like honesty, generosity, compassion, you can observe the effects of those qualities, but they are qualities and they're not really quantifiable. Um, But telling the truth, um, writing a paper, career accomplishment, those things are quantifiable outcomes of, you know, character and integrity. they're observable quantities. Um, the tangibles, I think, are they're the results. Of, I'm, I'm repeating myself right now. The tangibles are the results of the qualities and the quantities. Um, you know, a home, a successful career, a, a supported friend or family member. Um, as far as life goes, like the the tangibles are not a guaranteed outcome of having good character. Certainly we can think of people who are very honest and kind and life hasn't gone their way, but without 
the intangible qualities, you definitely won't have the tangibles. There's no way that you will you will ever get the tangibles without having the intangible qualities there. And that's what I try to model for my child, um, my daughter in particular. Um, I try to be very, you know, very honest with her. Um, an example about that would be talking about, you know, my husband's struggles with addiction. Um, when she asks questions, I answer honestly. Now, age-appropriate adjustments, of course, but um, I answer her honestly. I, I don't try and hide anything from her um, because I, I respect her. And that's another intangible is respect. I respect her to be a good observer of things and, and to see things. And she's asking me because she's seeing something that doesn't make sense to her and she wants to understand. I owe it to her to give her the best age appropriate answer that I can. Um, I, and I owe I, it to her to validate her experiences. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I also, I want to see her, she's my daughter. I wanna see a, I want her to see a strong, resilient mother. Um, yeah, I, I think this is so great and so important because the work that you all are doing is about more than just your own recovery. It's about breaking the generational cycles and showing the people that we are charged with nurturing that there is another way, that there is a better way. So when your focus for your own recovery is on what impact will these actions and these behaviors have on my daughter? I mean, it's like a, I hate to be all cliche, but it's a win-win, right? It's a it's not only are you working on yourself and getting healthier yourself, but, but you're, you're modeling. I know that's one of the things, I mean, listen, I drank way too long into our kids' lives. Our oldest two especially have had some um, significant impacts from my drinking. And that's something I'll never forgive myself for. But at the same time, we have shown them that alcohol does not have to be a part of a successful adulthood. And that's something I never knew existed. You know, I, I just equated alcohol with success in adulthood. And so even though I screwed it up for a long time, I, I still feel like that modeling piece is really important um, to, I don't know, to our legacy or just to how I feel about myself, because we've created a different uh, option as far as a path for our kids as they enter adulthood. Well, and I love the age appropriate communication yeah. because you know, I having grown up with a father who was an alcoholic and my parents were separate or were divorced, but he still played a part in our lives, especially every other weekend. But there were times where there were instances throughout the week that he would show up. And, you know, I, my mom really didn't hold back, but she wasn't age appropriate. And I know in the beginning, like when the kids started questioning, I would be like, oh, it's fine. It's fine. Oh, and I would lie. And then I realized you know, I didn't know the term gaslighting so much, but I was like, I gaslit my kids and I lied to them and I didn't want to do that. So I love that you are focusing on those age appropriate conversations, validating what she's feeling because they really do pick up on it. And then there won't be that question. And she can really learn from an early age to trust her instincts because we know that the kids are picking it up. We know that they understand it. So then they can really be validated that my feelings are really making sense because mom or dad, you know, whoever the sober partner parent is, is helping me navigate that instead of that feeling of, I can't really trust my feelings into it. And that will carry into adulthood, I think. So I, yeah, yeah. I encourage our listeners to find those resources for age appropriate conversations. Absolutely. Sh Sherry, you were, you remind me a bit of me. Um, in my family, it was my grandfather. And my experience with it was um, he was uh, sober for 20 years, which ended when I was 14 with a, a very, very severe binge at Christmas time when we were visiting. And um, it was, I remember it being so confusing. I was like, it had never even been discussed. We, we had no idea. I had no idea that my grandfather even drank. There was no, you know, in my family, it was never even around. Um, and then all of a sudden, my grandfather was very, very drunk at Christmas and everyone was upset. It was very, very confusing. And so I, I don't want that confusion 
there's going to be some confusion on my daughter's part. That's natural. It's this is all, all of this is confusing for adults, much less children. But I, I don't I want to help with that confusion to the best of my ability. Um, and then one of the other things I wanted to add, because I know I've been talking for a little bit while, but someone um, so. Someone who was giving me advice a couple of years ago said something to me. And she said, you know, your daughter has seen stressed out, upset, sad, crying mommy. She needs to see happy mommy. She needs to see, you know, strong mommy. She needs to see, you know, mommy getting up and, and, and functioning anyway. And I took, really took that to heart. Um, and that was really driving one of the things that I, I talked about in my writing was our vacation this summer that got interrupted. Um, we had planned a very big vacation to go, you know, out to the Pacific Northwest for the whole family. And that was interrupted by, um, you know, my husband with a, a very serious relapse. And I thought very seriously about it. Could we, should we postpone it? You know, should we wait until he's back home? And I thought, no, absolutely not. You know, my daughter's been looking forward to this. We're going to go and we're going to have a good time. And we went. It was a great vacation. Um, it was, a, yeah, I, I'll admit to having some anxiety about it, but um, it was um, it was a great vacation. I'm so glad we did it. We have, we have experiences and memories together now. Um, and I wouldn't change that for the world. And, you know, I showed her, you know, you can go on and live your life in spite of what someone else is, is go doing right now. Mm -hmm. That's great modeling. It's also resilience. It's determination. There's a lot of those intangibles that you talked about that are on display when you made that decision to go ahead with the, the vacation. Another thing that you wrote about um, was you know, you, you basically, uh, gave us the pop culture definition of insanity. When you said in, in this particular writing that we're referencing, that you're not a fan of doing the same thing over and over again and, you know, getting the same kind of crappy results. And so, um, I know that that's, that's something that we alcoholics are very good at doing the same thing over and over again. Also very determined in, in your writing is Grace Ann. Thank you for being with us, Grace Ann. I love the way you write. Um, not just this particular piece that we're talking about from a few weeks ago, but you, I always find that you have a real efficiency and like you, you get to the point and it's really powerful. And I can think of no example of that that, that is more exemplary of your efficiency and your powerfulness than these four words that you wrote a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about self-worth. You said your worth is non-negotiable. That, that is the kind of thing that to me might be easier to say than to actually believe and live. Can you talk about that a little bit? Your worth is non-negotiable. Is that something that truly lives in your heart? How does that work for you? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm glad that you said that last piece because that is actually the last part of that statement that, um, that I had uh, written. And it, it, you know, it was, my worth is not negotiable. It can't be measured or quantified. It lives inside my heart. And it absolutely does. And, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna lie. There are times when I get shaken and, and you know, that gaslighting, it, can turn your bones to jelly and, you know, turn you to a puddle until you can bring yourself back into form. And when I say that my worth is not negotiable, I don't mean it in an aggressive way. I only mean that all things, living, non-living, have worth. And how I know that is when I look to nature and I bring myself to nature, um, I know that um, my heart speaks to and hears the language of nature through intuition and perception. And I, I think that that intuitive heart perceives the unity of all things. And with that, I feel connected and I feel worthy. 
Um, and when I get pulled out of that, that space out of that, that heart centered place that knows my worth um, and knows it's not negotiable, that's when I find myself in my head and my head can become dark. It can bring me into that downward spiral where I feel like I can't climb back out. And I know this is going to sound a little bit corny, but this is me. I, I visualize sometimes when I get into that dark headspace that I'm deep down in this sort of, I don't know, earthy depth. And I visualize a key finding my way back out. And the key is always a feather. It's a feather that floats down to me. And it's this feathers sort of, to me, represent hope and, and they're a lightness, but they, they have so much power in when they're on a bird, right? The feather allows them to fly. And so that's kind of how I work. You know, I, I kind of bring myself back, you know, sometimes go and sit in nature and I just be part of that environment and it really pulls me back to my heart center where I know that I belong to everything I belong to this universe and that in itself is my worth and I don't need any more proof just like all of us we all belong um you know I like to use the example of a, a, a dandelion you know people we know what dandelions look like they're actually really beautiful most people call them a weed. Well, a weed by definition is just something growing in a place where a human doesn't want it. It is actually a flower. And, you know, it's a very sunny, bright, happy flower. And children pick them and give them to their moms. And, you know, what perfect example of something worthy than a child choosing it. You know, they are, they don't know any different. And, and so I, I think you know, a, a dandelion is often a, a great representative of us. You know, sometimes we feel unwanted. Sometimes we're trampled, mowed over, sprayed with weed killer, whatever it happens to be. Um, you know, you can take that sort of metaphor how you want in your own life. And, and the dandelion comes back stronger, brighter, sunnier, and still says, here I am. And, you know, it serves a purpose on our planet. It has nutritive qualities um, in its phytochemical makeup and it, it feeds the earth potassium where the earth is, is dying. Um, it's super nutritive to our human bodies and other animals. And so, I don't know, I think it's, it's something that we can, we can look to ourselves and say, we are part of that. We are, like the dandelion, you know, we, we might not always be feeling like we're wanted somewhere or loved or needed, but we know we have quality and we have, we have something to offer. Yeah. May we, may we all be as resilient as the dandelion, because you're right. As someone who has for decades now tried to get rid of them, um, you're really putting this in a new perspective. You've, you've definitely sent me down a rabbit hole this evening sometime i'm sure i'll start researching why is it that we try to kill these stupid things uh, like what is it about our society from 100 years ago that we decided these things were evil but but all joking aside i love your connection to nature and how that powers you and we have talked multiple times about there are so many things in our lives that we give lip service to but we don't actually act upon like you know, we need to eat right. We need to exercise. We need to be in contact with other people and have good relationships. We need to see the sunshine. We need to get out in nature. And I'm afraid that sometimes we don't actually follow through. And I love that you do that. This connection to nature is more than just on the to-do list that you may or may not get to. Um, you know, it even is in your visualizations for how to get out, uh, when you're, when you're feeling stuck, you, you talked about how nature gives you that kind of, you know, you, you realize that the things in nature are unconditionally worthy. Avia, you talked about unconditional worthiness as well. You said that you know that your own children are unconditionally worthy 
And since you're someone's child, so too are you. Can you talk a little bit about that connection to being someone's child and how that plays into to your self-esteem and feeling good about yourself? Well, um, I think when my uh, daughters were born, um, I just spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, how I wanted to raise them. And um, all of a sudden, some of those requirements that had been put on me that seemed okay were not okay for me to pass on to them. And, um, you know, I would never want them to think that they had to perform to be worthy to me or to be, you know, a good, good girl all the time or, you know, any of those things. They were worthy just because they were who they are. And, and I know to my parents, I, I was the same regardless of the requirements that somehow, you know, got stuck in my head. But um, so I think the last thing that I said in my writing is um, the way I feel about them, my kids, is the mirror I hold up to myself. What a, what a beautiful perspective on that. Um, boy, when you're, when you're trying to combat gaslighting and lies and things that are trying to drag you down, um, this is a couple of times now we've talked about that relationship to, to not just modeling for children, but how, uh, we, we treat our children, how we think of our children and how that should make us feel about ourselves as well. Laura, I, when we talk about the lies and the gaslighting, one of the things that you have shared for the time that we have known you is that the lies are sometimes more painful than the drinking itself. Um, so it's, it's almost like, you know, you've got two battles that you're fighting. You're, you're, you're fighting with dealing with the actual addiction, the, the consumption of a substance, but you're also battling the denials that come with it that come out of a place of low self-esteem and shame. I mean, I'm speaking as the alcoholic. I know that that's where it, when I would deny or lie, that's where it came from for me. Can you talk a little bit about how, you know, not just facing um, someone who's got a substance use disorder, but someone who's constantly lying to you, how does that chip away at your worthiness and how do you combat that? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm still stuck on the, um, the dandelion metaphor. Um, and I think, because I think that it, 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 it play, it ties into this as well. Right. Because, you know, I, I love that visual in my mind of like, you think of the dandelion and, and, you know, Grace Ann is right. Like how we, we just try to constantly, we're like trying to get rid of the dandelions. We're mowing them, we're pulling them out. We're, you know, and as she said, no matter what you do, you can't, you know, they come back and they come back stronger. You know, you get rid of a dandelion, suddenly there's like 50, right? And it that really resonates with me um, because in, in terms of, you know, making that connection with the lying as well, because it was just, it was constant. It's a, it's a, you know, I, I'm, I was constantly being bombarded with lies and it's, it, it does. It takes a huge toll on your on your mental health, because, you know, again, I think from what Sherry talked about at the beginning, when she talked about, you know, that relationship with the gaslighting, you know, when when someone says things to you, you often. You know, you do somehow believe them, but what happens is you get into this dance, right? So you get triggered. And now you're doing things that that you never thought that you would do or say, right? So, you know, the lying made me do things like, you know, I, I was looking on his phone. I was marking bottles. I was putting, you know, tape on the door to see if he was ever going outside. I was taking pictures. I mean, that, you know, and I was becoming almost like a crazy person. You know, I would say to myself, who does these things? And I couldn't stop myself. Um, because I constantly was trying to seek out the truth. I, I just want, all I wanted to do was actually be able to get proof that something he told me was a truth and, and I never could. And, you know, again, though, bringing back the dandelion, I, I just kept, you know, getting up and, and, you know, becoming, uh, 
you know, the lies have broken me down for so long, but I actually think, and again, I, I have to, you know, I know I keep saying it, but I have to give credit to the group of giving me that strength of saying enough, you know, enough in my, you know, cause I have encountered them since I've, I've come to the group and I have to say to myself, stop, this isn't about you. Um, this is about him. And yeah, and you know, we often talk a lot about trusting yourself uh, in the group of trusting yourself to know that, you know, I'm not even going to get into it. I'm not dancing anymore. I'm not saying, did you, didn't you? I'm trusting myself after 18 years of going through this. I'm finally at a point where I can trust myself. I may not be able to trust him, but I can trust myself. Well, that's the only thing you can control. So it makes a ton of sense to, to stay focused on that and not focus on the thing that you, that is beyond your control. I'm glad you brought the, I'm glad everybody likes the dandelion metaphor. I do too. You know, dandelions uh, thrive in the sunlight as we all know, as spring approaches, someday spring will happen. Um, Depending on where you live. Yeah. But dandelions thrive in the sunlight. And one of the things that you wrote, Jessica, that I just really loved and I pulled from what you shared a couple of weeks ago was that you had to emerge from the darkness and cling to the light. How is that? I mean, that sounds like a description of what the continuous work of recovery looks like for you, emerging from the darkness and clinging to the light. Is that an ongoing process and how is it going for you? Yes, it's definitely an ongoing process. I wish I would have looked for different ways for healing. I feel like Al-Anon and then your guys' group has helped so much. I feel like you live with an alcoholic spouse, so much focus on the disease and on what he's doing. And through these other support groups, I've learned like, I'm not going to focus on him. I'm going to focus on me and my healing. And that has helped so much to bring lightness, freedom, <laughs> peace in my life. And so doing your guys' support group, writing, getting my feelings out, and also focusing on God more, more quiet times with him has revealed. I just like search my soul and I can find who I am, focusing more on me and that healing. And so that's been really great. That's beautiful. Again, just that focus on the thing that we can have an impact on ourselves. Um, it's the only thing we can do. It's the only thing that's effective. And I'm glad that you've embraced it. And I'm glad that you're embracing your spirituality. I know that's a big part of the healing process for me as well. Um, you pointed out. Say, sorry. Do you mind? Like what Laura said, sometimes as the alcoholic spouse, we're so focused on like, how much is he drinking? trying to disprove the lies it can make you feel crazy inside and i finally was able to stop doing that and it was freeing yes i had to disengage and um i feel kind of pull away from him some but it has been freeing not to focus on that so much yeah absolutely the detachment serves two purposes really it's it's really beneficial in the ways that you describe for yourself, Jessica, but it's also the only thing that has a chance to impact us, the alcoholics, when our spouses detach, it's way more impactful than when they urge or beg or plead or nag, if you want to use a negative term. So I love that you're embracing that, it, you know, it's, it's got a, a chance of having an impact on you and it's guaranteed, pardon me, a chance of having an impact on him. And it's guaranteed to have an impact on you. One of the things that you shared in your writing from a couple of weeks ago, Allie, that I think is an important point I want to work in here is that feeling worthy doesn't mean you can't fail. Um, you, you gave an example of uh, trying to help out with, uh, with one of your kids' sports and that, you know, you can still, you can still fail, but get on with it. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that story? Yeah, that, uh, laugh about that. Yeah, um, it actually wasn't even my daughter's. Well, it was my daughter's sport, but it wasn't my daughter on the team. Um, 
my daughter goes to a relatively small school and I had in years previously coached her basketball team, usually along with someone else. Um, this is when they were like five, six, seven, eight age group. Well, a couple of years ago in particular, um, the school was in need of um, a middle school basketball coach. And so they asked me if I would, they had somebody, you know, had another parent step up and say that they would coach our, my daughter's age group. And I said, um, okay. Um, I was completely unprepared for middle school girls. Um, <laughs> loved, I ended up loving all of the girls, but I was totally not prepared for that, for, you know, the, the emotions and the drama. Um, and I was also completely unprepared for how much the skill level jumps when you go from elementary to middle school basketball. And it was just blown away. The season was, it, I can't say it was a, dis, well, it was a disaster. Um, the girls, you know, lost every game and they lost it pretty badly. And I felt really bad at the end of the season because they were actually really disheartened. And I would, you know, remember talking to a couple of the girls after the season and saying, you're a very good player. You know, don't let this season discourage you. You know, please keep, please keep playing if you, you know, enjoy it, if you're still enjoying it. Um, how do I just get on with that, with it? Um, I kind of had to just, you know, kind of move on from there. Um, it, it was some good, you know, talk from, um, you know, some of the school members and they were very, you know, thank you for giving your time. You know, it was just, we realized that you were, you were volunteering for kids who weren't even your kid, you know, so thank you for that. Um, but the main way in which I'm just kind of getting on with it is um, I'm watching my daughter. She's now in middle school and she's playing basketball and the coach that they have right now, he is, he's really, really good. He's really good with the girls. He really understands, you know, their mentality. Um, the girls have been improving incredibly. And so I've, I've been talking to him a little bit this season. I backed him up um, when he couldn't make practice. I've stepped in and, and run a practice for him. And I've talked to him about next year. Um, shadowing him as a coach being like an assistant coach so that I can you know learn from him see the ways that he's approaching how to teach the girls these skills and and go on and take over the next year because next year will be his last year his daughter is graduating and so he will be moving on with her and they will once again be in need of somebody so I'm going to try and prepare so that hopefully I can do this again more prepared more informed and be, you know, give the girls that I'm responsible for this time more value. That's a great example of, you know, learning from our experiences. I won't say failures, but learning from our experiences. The second soccer team I ever had back when I was in my young twenties was a middle school girls team. And I used to say uh, soccer wasn't even in their top 10 most important things in their mind while they were playing soccer. It wasn't even yep. in their top 10. And so yeah. I can really relate to what you're saying. Speaking of relating to things being said, Grace Ann, I noticed a couple of times when we were talking about the importance of stopping working on your spouse and starting to work on yourself, you were nodding rather, you know, enthusiastically. So has that been a big part of what, where your self-worth comes from, your, um, understanding that you are the one that deserves to have the focus be on you as opposed to putting all the focus on your husband. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'm pretty new in that area. It has, that door just opened to me recently and it just feels absolutely cathartic. It feels so freeing. Um, you know, I just got so sick and tired of researching and looking things up and reading about alcoholism. And at one point I just thought, why is it all about the alcoholic person? Why is it all about them? Why am I not finding anything for me? I'm so tired of 
I'm exhausted and I want something for me. I want to have something that feeds my soul that makes me feel validated and, and that what I'm going through is real. And so, you know, that actually led me to you guys. I found you and it was the right moment, the right timing. It was, I was ready to receive this group and this offering. And it was just like, honestly brought me to my knees with just joy. And, you know, to kind of go back to not to, not to preach on this too much, but I, I also had a moment um, just before I met you guys um, that really sort of pushed me in this direction as well. And it was um, a ritual that I have and it's, it's a moon ritual, you know, that's my, my world, but it, it, I had a journal and I'm a bit of a wordy. So I wrote in, I would write in my journal and a lot of my writings for the last few years have been um, after these horrible events that you spoke of at the beginning about the gaslighting. And I would just feel so deflated. And so, like I said, my bones literally felt like they had turned to jelly in these moments where I'm being told things that go so against who I think I am and really negative. And I know they're coming from a place of anger or, or, you know, alcohol or the disease, whatever you want to call it. And, and I know there's no truth in it, but it still turns you to jelly. It still makes you feel all the feelings all at once. And it's so overwhelming. And so I would write, I would write in this journal and oh my gosh, the writing was just heavy and angry and hurtful and hateful and just really dark stuff. And so I decided one day that that was enough. I couldn't, you know, keep this journal anymore. And um, I tore out the pages that I didn't like that I never went back and read them, but I definitely knew they were heavy. And I thought it's time to let them go. So I got a little fire going in my backyard and it was during the the three quarter moon. So a nice time to release and let go. Um, And I took each page and crumpled it up and put it in that fire and just watched them burn and watch the smoke go up and, and, you know, it just, I knew all of that negativity was going into the ether. It was gone. It was no longer a part of me. And it was, again, a huge release. And that's when I knew this is it. There's no turning back. This is for me now. I am on this journey for me. You know, I'm still supportive of my husband, still here for him. I know that he needs support, but I'm more open with him now. I tell him it's time for me to have a voice in this. And I'm not not hiding myself from the world anymore. And I'm, I'm, I need self-care. I need to be, um, you know, taken care of. And that's, yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, that's a great story. I, I think it really lends credibility to the focus that we put and the emphasis that we put on writing our experiences, how important it is. It serves multiple purposes. I, you know, I, we have someone in our lives whose husband, um, he committed suicide and she has talked about how important it was to put that down, that experience of finding him, put it down in writing so that she could get it out of her head and it could live someplace else. And I'll never forget when she described that to me. And so I I love that not only did you journal about your experiences, but you picked the ones that weren't serving you any longer and you got rid of them in a way that made a ton of sense to you. And so even as you burn those words, they're still serving a purpose there. It's a release for you. If I'm hearing you correctly, um, is that what it, is that what it felt like? You didn't, you didn't regret yeah. writing them and that's why you burned them. Did you? No, no, not at all. It was, it, it, it was so important for me to write them. It was, um, I had to, I had to get it out of my, out of my body. I had to get it out of my head and, and, seeing those words on the page felt like I was dumping the garbage out of me. And 
and then one day I was looking, you know, when I sort of came to this realization that holding on to all of this is not serving me, holding on to trying to fix my husband is not serving me, but I need to let go of that control. And, you know, a lot of like what Laura said, recognizing that you're like a crazy person because you're trying to control all these little situations that you feel like, well, I need to know where he's at. Did he drink? Is he lying? Because I'm protecting myself. I feel like if I don't know, how can I protect myself from what's to come? And when you kind of let go of all of that, it doesn't mean you're not caring anymore. It just means you're letting go of this need to control and and be this crazy person that feels like they're controlling everything that you can't control. And so, yes, when I, when I finally realized that part of me was, was unhealthy and toxic, um, I started seeking other ways to um, nurture myself. And I happened to pick up my journal one day, my sister and I were actually talking and she was talking about journaling. And I said, yeah, I have this really crazy journal. And then I remembered, wow, I have a lot of crazy stuff in here. And I started to flip through it after I talked to her. And I was like, whoa, whoa, you know, heavy, negative, dark, angry. And I thought, my gosh, if someone were to pick up this journal, like my kids saw it, they'd be like, wow, mom really hates dad. Like, this is really nasty. And I don't, those are just in the moment feelings. Those are like release moments that I wrote in there at a dark time. So I thought, you know what? Literally, we were in this this moon, the phase of the moon that is a great time to release. And so I went outside that morning and I got a fire going and I just put all of that in there. And it was like, it literally, I felt like I could float back into the house. I felt so light, like all that heaviness I didn't even know was dragging me down. It, it just was gone. And that's when I found you guys. And I, I just said, that's it. I'm looking for something for me. This is about me now. And yeah, it's been huge. And I love that you, you do the writing pieces because <laughs> it's kind of, um, yeah, it's kind of an important ritual for me. Well, speaking of rituals, I'm glad that you not only wrote about those things, but you, you, you know, got rid of them in a way that felt right to you and that you were confident sharing that with us. I think that's one of the most important things about this community is that um, we, you know, we don't have a specific religious designation that we center ourselves around. We're open to anyone's spiritual practices. Um, There were, you know, lots of references to nature and some of the stuff that you shared, Grace Ann, which I really appreciate on this episode, there were references to God. And I watched people on the, the, the screens who our listeners don't have access to sadly, because this is radio and not TV, but you were nodding and smiling at each other as you listen. So there's so much mutual respect for the different spiritual practices. And that's one of the things that I am uh, most excited about and proud of about the, the community that there's so much mutual respect. Mm-hmm. It's big. Speaking of big, I want to end with one more quote from the writings from a couple of weeks ago. Um, I think this just encapsulizes the conversation and it's really good advice for our listeners who might be battling with this idea of worthiness. Allie, part of what was in your writing, you said that we need to extend kindness to the person we hold to the highest standard ourselves. And I just think, um, you know, if, if you've listened to this whole episode and you've listened to these strong women talk about what it takes to feel worthy in the face of gaslighting and lies and um, all of the impacts of alcoholism, um, you need to remember that this the feeling of worthiness and the regaining of self-esteem isn't the kind of thing that just comes back overnight. It takes time. And we need to give ourselves a lot of grace as we work through the process. 
Thank you all so much for being on the Intoxicated Podcast with us today. This was great, huh, Sherry? It was very, very good. And you didn't, you weren't stuck with just me. Yeah. Pretty awesome. I love the company. Yeah. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.